If you take your Bibles, please, take them out, open them to the book of Hebrews, and the sixth chapter, Hebrews chapter 6. If you would join me in standing, please, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning again at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation of fled the refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. For the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day. We pray that you would give us clarity and understanding. Help us to see your truth in all that we do. And help us, God, to recognize the reality that our faith is born from your promise. That you give us eyes and ears and hearts to see your truth in a way that changes. And that your glory will always shine through. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to take a very slight detour today. And I want to step a little sideways out of this text into the context of the promise that God has given to Abraham. I want us to think about what our response is to the promise, to God's promise in general, and about how our affections and our obedience are connected not only to promises themselves, to God's promise, but they're connected to each other, affection and obedience. They are tied together. There is an inextricable connection between obedience and blessing. It's a connection that's both profound and powerful. It is both important and beautiful. It is the very essence of vital faith. For we cannot believe God without loving Him. Consider, if we doubt His power, we despise Him as a liar, for He says He can do all things. If we doubt His nature, we might believe He can do what He says, but we're never at peace with it, for we have no basis of real trust. To really get to the bottom of this promise and what it tells us about Abraham, and more importantly about God Himself, we need to see it in its context. Turn me to Genesis chapter 22. Today we're actually going to spend most of our time in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 22. And um, we're going to start at verse 1. And we're going to read the account which is referenced here in Hebrews chapter 6. So Genesis 22. Starting at verse 1. 
Now it came to pass after all these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father, and he said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. They came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. Then he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him upon the altar, upon wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So the first thing we need to understand is this moment in, in the life of Abraham is incredibly pivotal for a lot of reasons. Um, this, this moment of offering, there's a whole lot going on here that if you're not familiar with the text and not familiar with the story of Abraham, you might miss. And it's important. It's important for us to understand because it gives us some perspective on exactly what's going on. Much sorrow and trial has been endured to come to this place. The child being offered on the altar is the promised son. He is the son that God had promised Abraham he would give him by his wife Sarah. He is the child that, that Abram has waited for. And to get to this place, there have been years of wandering. There have been battle and war and conflict within his family. 
he has been forced to exile his firstborn son, Ishmael. And there have been year after year after year of waiting. When Isaac was first promised, it was only in a passing manner. When God called Abram to come out of Horam, he told him that he would multiply his descendants. And at that point, Abraham had no children. But it's just barely a blip on the radar. It's this promise that I will give you a land and I will multiply your descendants and they will be many. Abraham was 75 years old when that promise was first given. When he was 86 years old, already having waited 11 years, Ishmael was born. Now remember that when Ishmael was born, it was Abraham trying to do what God had promised he would do in his own strength. It was Abraham trying to fulfill the promise of God ahead of God's timing. Now, in case you're not aware of it, anytime you try to lay hold of something good in a wrong manner or at the wrong time, it is never going to go well. It becomes sin for us. For instance, God is the inventor of sex. In fact, God pronounced it good. God pronounced it very good. But to pursue that out of the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. And it taints and defiles and destroys that which is otherwise a good thing. God made food that we might enjoy it. But if you pursue it beyond all reason, you start to look like me. <laughs> God made work, and it's good for a man to work. But when he pursues work without limit, he destroys his family. God made rest. But when you pursue rest without thought to work, you are slothful and will also destroy your life. God has given us all things, and he has given us all things in such a way that we will be blessed by them. But to try and pursue what God has given in a manner apart from his command and blessing and apart from his timing will always ruin both the object and the possessor. This is the essence of sin. So when Abraham pursued fulfilling the promise of God and sought to have a child outside of what God had ordained, it created problems in his family. It created problems for the child, and eventually, because the child, well, he wasn't a child of promise, and his mother was kind of uppity and taught him to be kind of uppity, and there was some conflict there, and Sarah was kind of snarky and didn't like either one of them, eventually, Abraham had to send them away. For all he knew, he sent them away to die. And in fact, the child's mother thought they would. And it wasn't until the angel of the Lord intervened and showed her where water was to be found and pronounced upon her a promise that Ishmael sort of departs from the story. But we are assured that Ishmael would be a father of many nations as well. And in fact, that promise came true. Out of Ishmael was born all of the Arab nations. So, not only did Abraham's sin ruin his family in ways, it also produced war and conflict and destruction for us even still today as the Arab nations war against God's people Israel. We never know how far the reaches of our overreaching for sin will have consequences. 
So it's important for us to remember that by the time Abraham got to this place, he had endured much and he had seen many problems. He was 86 when Ishmael was born. He was 99 when God gave him the covenant of circumcision. So he had waited 11 years before he sought to sin. <laughs> and God made him wait even longer before he gave him the promise of Isaac in a, in a more profound way, gave him the promise of circumcision. And he was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Now that's remarkable enough when you consider that, you know, some hundred-year-old man might father a child to a young wife, but Sarah was 90. God did what he did because he promised what he promised. And not only did he promise what, but he also promised how. And more than that, he also promised when. And he promised that if Abraham would pursue him, he would find everything that was promised given to him. And in Isaac, Abraham had been given everything he was promised. This was the delight of his father's heart. This was the boy that he loved beyond all comprehension. And God had promised him for so long. And, and often we don't see the promises in God's interactions with Abraham. But there are three or four instances where God promises the coming of this child. So look at Genesis chapter 12. Let's back up just a little bit. Genesis chapter 12. And uh, we're just going to read the first few verses. God's original calling out of Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So here's the promise of the promised land. And he said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to you and to your descendants, I give this land. And he built an altar to the Lord there who had appeared to him. I remind you, Abraham is at this time 75 years old and has no children. Chapter 13, verses 14 and following. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abraham moved, Abram moved his tent and went to dwell in the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Now, sometime between the original promise the issue with Lot and his men and the departure of the people to the different places and the promise of all of the land being given to Abram, Abram grew weary of waiting. And if we look at chapter 15, we're going to find this conversation. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. 
But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. He said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So this promise, this I assure you, this, this moment when Abram has begun to doubt the word of the Lord. He's begun to doubt the promise. He's begun to doubt. He's begun to doubt the veracity of his God. And God says to him, look, I understand. I'm going to assure you of the promise and I'm going to give you my solemn vow. You will have a child born from your own body and your descendants will be more numerous than the stars that you can see in the heavens. If you've never observed the heavens on a clear desert night, you have no idea of how many stars there actually are. It is mind-blowing. And God promised Abram, your descendants will far outnumber them. Abram had been faced with this crisis of belief. And I remind you that the coming of Isaac was 25 years of waiting. 25 years he waited for God to fulfill his promise. And now Isaac is 12 years old. And God says to him, I want you to kill him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the inner turmoil? How do you even begin to process that? Well, to steal from a far future sermon, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abram considered that God would just raise Isaac from the dead. Believing so, he received him back from the dead before anything happened to him. That faith was the thing that was really at issue here. That's powerful faith. But it's a, it's a faith that has to go deeper than just a momentary faith. And, and that's the part that we really need to engage with. Because faith and belief, they're not static things. Now often, it is presented to people when they're talked to about the gospel and spoken to about the promises of God. That if you'll just believe this time and say this prayer and do this thing, you're going to be saved. Like it's a static, punctiliar action. Engage in this thing at this moment. Now you're done. Here's your papers. Go live your life. You got your hell insurance. You have your ability to, to know that you're going to get into heaven. And you need not worry about anything else. And in fact, many will go so far as to tell them, do not ever question your salvation. To question your salvation is to question God. Now, you need to understand that if you're saved, God will always save you. And you don't need to question it, worrying if God's going to keep his promise. But the scripture does tell us to examine ourselves to see whether we're found in the faith. The scripture tells us to be earnest about these things. But the scripture also tells us that faith is not merely a punctilier action, but faith is a vibrant, living, dynamic thing. It is not a static moment. It is not a moment that just exists and has nothing else to do with it. 
Belief is not a singular event. It is a continuum. And it's a continuum that you engage with for the entirety of your life. You are called to believe God every day that you draw breath on this rock. Amen. You are called to take Him at His word, and you're going to accomplish that to a better or lesser degree, depending on your circumstances and your person. There's going to be some days that are better than others. There's going to be days where you stand and you look at God and say, God, you promised this, and I have no child. Or whatever his promise to you might be. God, you've given me this word and I see nothing but ruin. The circumstance is absolutely untenable. There's no way this is going to come out. I look through the mirror of the circumstances I can see. And all there is is death and destruction. All there is is ruination. All there is is sorrow and misery and catastrophe. And every bad thing is going to happen. And God says, I know you see that. But I see more. And so the question is, in those moments, do you continue to believe God? In those moments, do you continue to rest upon Him? In those moments, do you rest in His promise, which is based in His person? Remember, He had no one greater to swear by than Himself, so He swore by Himself. So every promise of God is rooted in the person of God and answered in the person of Christ. Amen. 2 Corinthians 1.9 says, In Jesus, every promise is answered to Him. And, and yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Every single promise of God is fulfilled in the person of Christ. So where is it that your faith lies? We just read that Abraham believed God, took him at his word, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Did that one moment satisfy everything? Or did Abraham have to believe and continue to believe? Well, that one moment when he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness was 20 years before he was commanded to sacrifice Isaac. Do you think that he still had to believe God on the day when he took the knife in his hand and stretched it out over the breast of his son? Do you, do you think that he had faith in God when his servants said, what are you doing? He said, we're going to go up on the mountain, we're going to worship God, and we're going to come back. Did you catch that? We will return to you. Did Abraham know how God was going to accomplish that? No, he had an idea, which was wrong, thankfully. <laughs> God never authorized child sacrifice. But Abraham's belief was not in the process, but in the person. And so often we put our faith in the things that we can see, in the process of how we think God's going to fulfill his promise in our lives. And let me just tell you, if you've not been paying attention in the course of your life, that God has forced me to pay attention in the course of mine, and God never does what I think He's going to do in the way that I think He's going to do it. it just doesn't happen that way. He delights in surprising us. He delights in bringing us through the back door to show us wonders that we never comprehend. He delights in continually drawing us closer to Himself and causing us to be challenged in the things that we believe because our beliefs are never large enough 
Abraham clearly continued to believe and to demonstrate with his life that he trusted in God. Now, I don't want to put Abraham up on a pedestal, for there were clearly peaks and valleys in his faith. He had some stellarly low moments. God sent him into Egypt and God commanded him, go there, there's going to be a famine. And Abram didn't believe that God could protect him. So he decided the best way to protect myself from my beautiful wife's presence with me is to lie and say she's my sister. It got him into trouble with the king of Egypt. And so later when he went back to another land, he did it again. <laughs> Not once, but twice. The exact same lie, the exact same problems, the exact same consequences. He took his wife's pressure to heart and agreed to father a child by her handmaid, Hagar, instead of waiting upon God, and we've already discussed the consequences of that rebellion. That was a lapse in faith. That was him not believing God, not trusting in the process of God, not trusting in what God has, has given his word to do, but instead seeking to understand what he's going to do according to his own methods. But there were also glorious moments when Abraham showed how deeply he believed in God. We, we skipped over the part, but God had promised Abraham all of the land. And there was a conflict between Abraham and his nephew Lot. And Abraham just submitted to Lot and said, you go up here and you choose the best part. Pick the part you want to be in. And we'll go the other way. You go one way, we'll go the other. We'll, we'll get along. And Lot, instead of honoring his uncle who had protected him and ensured that he had much, chose the best part for himself. Now, in the end, it didn't turn out to be the best because Lot had all sorts of problems having set his tent towards Sodom. But I want you to notice that when Lot and the whole city of Sodom was carried off by not one, not two, not three, not four, but five kings, Abram and his little army of 300 went and whooped them all and returned to them. Not because they thought they were mighty, but because he trusted in God. He understood who he served. He believed God. And of course, we have this incredible moment in which Abraham believes God so much so that he, he has, I can't even comprehend how he had the ability to look his son in the eye when his son says, Dad, there's something missing here. I've got the wood on my back. I see the fire. I see the knife. the land. How do you answer that question? How do you look your boy in the eye knowing what you're intending? Because what was the instruction he was given? Go and offer him as a burnt offering. So how is it that Abraham had that sort of ability to trust God in the midst of that moment? Well, it's because he knew who God was. And he had something in his faith that we often overlook. See, faith requires courage. 
I want to come back to this pivotal moment now. I want to kind of drill in and focus on this time. Because this is really where we begin to see who Abraham really is. We begin to see him as a man. We begin to see him as a father. We begin to see him as a follower of God. And in the end, he has the son of promise that God calls to sacrifice him on the altar. And so the question that immediately arises, if we're cogent at all, is are we willing to sacrifice what has been given? Are we willing to surrender what God has placed into our hands? Do you cling to what you have with a death grip? Or do you hold it with open hands saying, God, this is yours? How do you view what God has given you? Because let me tell you the truth. Parents in the room know this. It takes courage to hold on with open hands. It takes courage to believe that God can be trusted with them when you can't. It takes courage to believe that God is bigger. How do we surrender what we have longed for all of our lives? How do we surrender what we love? And more importantly, why would God call him to do this thing? See, Abraham believed that whatever God had already promised was as real as if he held it in his hand. He believed that Isaac was the son of the promise, and through Isaac, all of the world would be blessed. God had made this painfully clear when it came to Ishmael. Abraham pled for Ishmael. Oh God, can't you just bless my son Ishmael? I love him. Oh, that my son Ishmael would live before you is the exact phrasing that we find in Scripture. There, there, there's angst there. there. There's sorrow there. There's pleading there. And God said, I'm going to take care of Ishmael, but he's not the son of promise. He's not the one I'm going to give you. <coughs> Abraham believed that God had given him Isaac. He knew it. So if Isaac is going to be the one through whom God blesses the world, and the one through whom Abraham's multitudinous descendants come, then can Isaac be dead? He's a 12-year-old boy. He hasn't had any progeny yet. It'd be different if he was a man of 21 and had children already. Well, okay. You've done your bit. Time to go. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Terrible to consider, but at least the promise wouldn't be at play. You understand? At this point, if Isaac dies, the promise is over. God has given his word. And the promise lives in the heart and mind of Abraham. He understands that the promise is real. And he believes that whatever God has promised is as real as if he holds it in his hand. And that truth changes how he interacts with it. It gives him courage to trust God when he can't see how. Furthermore, he believed that since God had promised, no circumstance could alter that promise, and anything that seems to alter it or change its path would simply be overcome or circumnavigated. The promise is here, and it is real. I am here, and whatever is in my way will either be gone through, around, over, or under. 
I will get to where God has promised me I will be. Because he has made the promise. That's the vision that Abraham held. He understood that Isaac was the, the path of the promise. That Isaac was the source through whom God would fulfill his word to him. And he had to believe that in spite of everything that he saw. Even the command that by your own hand, Abraham, you will take him out of this world. Courageous faith. Incomprehensible faith as we sit here coldly examining it. This confident courage, it's born out of love. He loved God. It's born out of knowledge. He knew his God. He didn't take people's word for who God was. He walked with God. He knew his God. It's born out of years of experience and years of, of travail and years of the faithfulness of God being lavished upon him and proven to him time and time and time again. Mostly it's born out of God giving him that faith. God being the author of that faith in the breast of Abraham. The same as he is the author of faith in us. God gave him what he needed so that he could believe with courageous confidence that God could be trusted. But none of that answers the why, does it? So what is it about the why that we need to know? Let me put it this way. Love is wasted on the wrong thing. Okay. Amen. Let's talk about the heart of what the test really is. It's important for us to understand that God is not in doubt about anything. He never was. He never is. He knew what he was going to do. And furthermore, he knew what Abraham was going to do. When God talks about testing a person, he's not talking about, oh boy, I wonder what they're going to do so I can change my plans and move the world according to their plan. And if Abraham does this, then okay, we'll go ahead and pull the trigger on the whole Jesus thing. I've heard it preached that way. What a bunch of malarkey. God is God. Known to him from the foundation of eternity are all of his works, the scripture tells us. He knows everything he's going to do. And he's never altered his course. He's never changed his plan. He's never changed his mind. Testing is a proving and a purification for Abraham to understand. It's the picture of when you remove bad metal from gold that is being refined. They talk about that process as smelting or purifying, but they also talk about it as testing, trying, proving gold. It's the idea of taking out everything that doesn't belong there. And when the scripture talks about God testing us, that's the picture that it has in mind. It was to demonstrate to Abraham and to Isaac that if you give your love to anything less than God, it will never be all that it should be. But when God is the first object of your love, your life, then everything in your life is touched by the blessing. Amen. I tell every couple that I counsel before marriage, 
that if you love each other more than you love God, this marriage is doomed. Don't do it. You have to love God more. And in loving God more, you have the courage and the ability to engage in the relationship regardless of personal consequence. To be able to say, yes, Lord, I will obey you even when it kills me. I will obey you even when it hurts. I will obey you even when I can't see how. I will obey you, God, regardless of anything else. And this is true for anything in your life. You have to be willing to say, God, it is your path and your will above everything else. Because you have to be the first one that I love. Now let's talk about Abraham, who somewhere in the area of 112 years old, is still incredibly immature in his faith. You say, but he took the knife. He was going to kill his son. Sure he did. But why did God bring him to the place where he had to do this? It was because for Abraham, the promise itself was everything he had lived for and everything he had lived by. It was about the promise. Oh God, you're going to do this great thing for me. You're going to fulfill this word to me. You're going to give me this land. You're going to give me these heirs. You're going to give me this thing. You're going to fulfill your promise to me, God. It's the promise. It's the promise. It's the promise. What was the promise for? To draw Abraham to God. So that Abraham would know him. So that Abraham would walk with him. So that Abraham would love him. Not because God was lonely and needed love. I've heard that preached too. Also a bunch of malarkey. But because we need to love him. Amen. Because apart from loving God, our lives are meaningless. Apart from loving God, our lives have no value whatsoever. And everything that we contribute to a dying world is just so much fertilizer. If we do not love God. We are made for him. And Abraham had lived for the promise. It had shaped him. It had guided his actions, his wanderings, his choices. He was always seeking after the heir. Always seeking after the boy. Always seeking after all of the things that God had promised him. And everything that we see about Abraham in scripture leads us to this conclusion. Until this moment. When his faith had to shift from the promise to the giver of the promise. When he had to understand that no matter what happens, God was more. And God was calling Abraham to love him more than he loved the promise. So that Abraham would understand what the purpose of all of this is. And the purpose of all of this is the relationship that we bear with God. He was determined to follow after his God because he loved him, because he trusted him, because he knew that God could be trusted. And he had to believe in some way that he couldn't understand how God would sort this out, but that God would sort this out. Abraham was forced to wrestle through these circumstances not only in the moment that he took everything up or in the moment that he looked in his boy's eyes, but in the moment that he took his adolescent son and bound him to the altar. You want to talk about post-traumatic stress? 
What's this going to do to their relationship? Daddy, remember that time you tried to kill me? I want a new car. Or I'm telling mom. <laughs> remember that time up on the mountain, good dad? What do I want today? This could shape a relationship forever. Interestingly enough, if we were to carry the story forward a generation, we see that Isaac missed the lesson. Because Isaac loved his son Esau more than he loved God. Amen. It's tragedy born into this family. Tragedy born into that descent. Tragedy born into the story woven throughout. Because we're all fallen. We're all failing. This moment of this most profound lesson that God is better than all of it. Isaac, the pivotal piece in this lesson, missed it. Is that his own fault? Is it his father's fault for not explaining it to him? I don't know. I just know that we're given the picture right now. And if we miss it now, doubly shame on us. Because we have more information than I wrote them to. We see from this side of Calvary what God is really doing here. In the end, when Abram looks at Isaac and asks the question, do I love him more than I love God? If he does not love God more, then is that a faith that God would call us to emulate? No. So you see, in some sense, Abram is also learning about faith for our benefit. In some sense, Abram is learning about trusting God more so that we might learn to trust God more. In some sense, Abram is doing what Abram is doing because God has brought him here so that there is something you will understand about faith and promise and God and purpose in this moment. And that's a remarkable consideration. That God himself had you in mind when this took place. Abram, we know the story, was prepared to sacrifice Isaac. In his mind, the deed was done, which is why the scripture says, in so doing, he received him back from death. Hard to comprehend. But he had a faith that trusted God regardless. So, how is it then that Abraham grew to that level of faith? Well, let's start here. You cannot know God without loving Him. To see Him, to know Him, to have any comprehension of Him whatsoever that is connected to truth will cause you to love Him. If you see God in a light that is wrong, you may or may not love Him. You may seek after the true God if God is actively at work calling you to Himself. 
you may seek out knowledge and understanding. There may be a longing in you, a hunger in you. But I firmly believe that the scripture tells us that seeing God for who he is accurately and truly results in love. It results in loving him. It results in, in this drawing of our hearts to him. And as God brings that love to bear in our lives, we come face to face with the truth that you cannot love him without believing him. If you know him, if you see him, if you understand what he is, your love automatically draws you to a place where you take him at his word. You begin to believe him. Imperfectly, I understand this, but belief and faith, they, they grow out of this love. But something else grows out of that belief and faith. And that's obedience. Because you can't believe God without doing what he says. You can't believe God without obedience at least being the target. Amen? Because if he's true, if he's real, if you love him, you're actually going to care about how he feels about your life. You're actually going to care about how he feels about your choices. You're actually going to allow his love, his desire, his command, his will, his preference to shape your preference. Now, I understand there are always going to be ways in your life that you're struggling, ways in your life that you get this wrong. But this needs to be the pursuit. This needs to be the thing that you want more than anything else is to honor God because you love him because you know him, because you believe him, because what he says matters, and believing him, you recognize the truth that you have to obey him. This kind of process grows us into a people where we have what is termed faith. I think that this is the trifecta of faith. I think this is the, the underpinnings of faith. Love, belief, obedience. I think these things are what we together comprise and say, that's faith. We look at it and we say, that's real faith. Which is why when the world looks at many Christians, they say they're hypocrites. And rightly so, because they do not do the things that they say they believe. They do not engage with their God as if they even believe he's real. Like it's a game. Now, sadly, this could be true of all of us at any given time. And is. But genuine faith, seen in its crystallized form, seen in the moment of its action, it speaks of love, it speaks of belief, it speaks of obedience. God calls us to engage with that kind of faith daily. Remember, it's not a static moment. It is a continuum. We cannot be faith saved without the faith to believe that God is who he says he is. We cannot be saved without the faith to believe that God keeps his promises. We cannot be saved without the faith to believe that God does everything that he absolutely promised he will never do. It is never about our doing. It's never about our best efforts. It's never about our trying because all of our righteousness is what? It's filthy rags. You're exactly right. The scripture says that all of our righteousness is filthy rags. And so all of our doing has no bearing on our salvation. It is about taking God at his word. And the faith to do that doesn't come from you. It comes from God. The scripture tells us that faith is the gift of God. 
Amen. We take him at his word and we believe that he will do what he said. If we repent of our sin and call upon Jesus, that God will hear and he will honor his word and forgive. We believe that God will count the death of Christ in our place and count it as our sin punished. We believe that he will credit the full and meritorious righteousness of Jesus to our account as if we ourselves had done every good and perfect thing that Jesus did. We believe that God will one day, on that glorious day, send Jesus back and return and take us with him to be with him forever. And we believe that when we are with him forever, we will be adopted, have been adopted into his family as children with the full inheritance of sons and daughters, co-equal with Christ. And we believe these things not because we made it up, but because the scripture tells us it's true. But more than that, we believe these things because as we walk in this world, God brings us to our own crises of faith, whereby we must ask the question, do I love God more than I love this? Hear me carefully. Those are not one-time events. They are an ongoing continuum themselves. They are a non-ending revelation of the glory of God. Because though you seek to know him with all of your heart and seek to know him with all of your mind and seek to know him with all of your strength and all of your will and all of your purpose and all of everything that you are and though you pour yourself into the pursuit of him with 100% of who you are, you will never get to the bottom of how great God is. And God delights in drawing us deeper. He delights in giving us more of Him. He delights in increasing our capacity to receive more of Him. We, we get this concept at some level when, when small babies are born. We know what their capacity is. We don't punish them for soiling their pants. They're babies. It's what they do. They eat. They poop. They sleep. They keep us awake. That's all they do. Because they're sleeping in ours and never in sync. <laughs> they still act like that when they're 30. We have a problem. We understand that capacity is a real thing. And God delights in increasing our capacity for Him. He delights in increasing our capacity for joy. He delights in increasing our capacity for glory. The Puritans had a saying that I love. I shared it with the men yesterday. In heaven, all cups will be full, but some will hold more. And what you do right now, in this moment, as you consider the essence of your faith and how God is calling you to love him more, is going to increase your capacity if you engage with him in it. Because everything that we are and everything that we do is dictated by this. It is always about knowing and trusting that God will keep every promise he ever made. This promise that he made to Abraham, blessing I will bless and increasing I will increase. We're going to unpack that a bit more next time. But you need to understand that what God is giving us is rooted and grounded not in what he gives us to hold or to have, but what he gives us of himself 
That we might know Him. That we might love Him. That we might delight in Him above all things. Because we, believe it or not, are the promised increase that God made to Abraham. We are the inheritance. We are a part of that promise being fulfilled even now. And we have both inherited that promise, and through that inheritance, we are the blessing. This promised blessing is the reality that God has given us the faith of our father Abraham. A faith worth emulating. Because when God brought Abram to this point of crisis, Abram sought God. And he showed us what that looks like. As terrifying as it is for us to consider what God might call us to surrender, we see that his blessing exceeds it. Amen. His blessing surpasses it always. And whatever it is that God is calling you to look at and to lay down, it is something that when you do, you will not be less for obedience. God plants this faith in our lives at the moment that he calls us to life. And when he does it, it makes the dead text live. Suddenly scripture comes to life. Suddenly scripture begins to speak. Suddenly scripture begins to have meaning and impact us. And it makes the dry and barren promise bear fruit. Just as it nourished the dry and barren womb of Sarah. It causes us to see and to know and to be the children of promise. And it causes us to walk in such a way that our lives are transformed for all eternity. Well, that this is the promise of God. That we would know Him and that we would walk in the fullness of His love. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. I pray, Lord, that as we seek your face, you would reward our searching with glory. Lord, we know that that reward is something that we don't earn, but you've given it. The desire to seek your face comes from you. The desire to hunger after you comes from you, God. We thank you for it. So Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Let us love you. Let us honor you. I pray, Lord, for everyone in the sound of my voice this day that there would be no one who does not know you. I pray for everyone who will hear this sermon through whatever means, that there will be no one at the end who does not know you, that you give faith to all. And I pray, God, that as we go forward from this place, that you would let faith pour out through us. The word of God might dwell richly among all who speak to. God, transform our lives for the sake of Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.